0: So we're in the middle of a series, of only a three-Sunday series called Oprah's Insights. And our reading today um, comes from Mark chapter 10. Just one little announcement before we come to the scripture reading is that um, in, not this Thursday, but the following Thursday, we are actually going to have a, not Thursday, sorry, it's Wednesday. It's the Ash Wednesday service. It's not on Thursday, um, but we're having an Ash Wednesday service at six o'clock right here. So that's a little, you know, kind of just out of the blue. So I'm plugging it now because all of a sudden you'll you'll maybe realize that there was Mardi Gras and and you know, and so your memory will get a little foggy, but. But Wednesday, there's a church service here to begin the season of Lent, which we're going to do some special things with, as we always do. It's always been a season where even if you come and you don't notice it happening, there's always extra levels of stories of of God's grace making its way into people's lives during the season of Lent. I'm not really sure why. Um, But we're going to try to shepherd that happening again this year. So that's February 22 on a Wednesday at 6 o'clock right here. Um, So our reader is Katie. And it's Mark chapter
1: ten. <laughs> oh, just 10, 10. Does that work? Mm-hmm. Okay. So today's reading is Mark chapter ten, forty six to fifty two. It can be found on page 934 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as up on the screen. This is God's Word. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging, What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. The word of the Lord.
0: Let us pray. God of grace, as we come into this room, I ask that you help clear away the clutter, the worry, the tension, um, or the angst, um, or the distractions that we find ourselves uh, noticing as we sit here. And in this time, um, there's a chance, despite the fact that we come from so many different places, there's a chance to recognize our commonality before you. That we're really more of a mess than we care to admit. We don't want to admit, and we, we prefer to find ourselves in places where we don't have to do things like say a prayer of confession when it comes down to it under the surface we're all more of a mess than we care to admit and you tell us over and over through your story that we're more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever imagined. And so whether we come to try to grab hold of some of that from a place of great disbelief, great doubt, struggle, um, or pain and suffering that's happened recently or whether we come with thankfulness because you've never seemed more real and we haven't known you to be this is present in our life, or whether we come kind of dull and numb to your existence. From all these places, join us now and meet with us so that we walk away knowing that you have been helpful on our journey and we have come to know you a little better. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Let me tell you how the sermon series uh, for Oprah's Insights. Let me tell you how that hatched as I try to undo something that's annoying me here. Um, because last week, I, I kind of introduced the series. Um, so for the three of you who were here on Super Bowl Sunday, um, I'm sorry for the repeat. <laughs> you know, Sorry to be annoying. Um, but the Oprah's Insights series, it sort of got hatched, I think it was last summer. When, whenever it was that she had her final... Uh, episode, you know, Oprah's grand finale episode. And I was kind of hearing about this in the news and I thought a, a quarter of a century on daytime television, you know, a gazillionaire <laughs> and all this following and grown into this huge phenomenon that Oprah Winfrey became. Um what what is her final show going to be about? What what will she say? And I know enough to know she she kind of captures cultural threads that resonate with people, and so it's sort of like a chance to read her cultural analysis and what's become important to her as she's walked this 25-year journey. So basically all I did, I didn't really watch the whole show, I didn't follow it very much um, because I wasn't following Oprah, but I did grab hold of her, her farewell address, which was this speech that she gave in her final show. And as I read it and then listened to it online, I, I was blown away by the number of times she, she described something that I thought, wow, she, she's just hit that chord perfectly. And I can see how people, wanna, you know, when they, if they have the time, if they're around in the daytime when her show was, they want to listen to it and, and watch her and follow her. And she's captured a lot of threads that are that kind of just they're there as a part of our cultural ethos. So that's where it all came from. It's not a chance to really. It really, it really is about her insights. But then just looking at the Bible as we do that and saying, okay, there's that issue. It's come up to the surface, and Oprah has seen it. Now, what do we do about it? What kind of does the Bible say about it? What what does it mean to be a Christian with respect to that issue? It's not really, you know, city life against Oprah or anything like that. Although last week was a little more, kind of back and forth, and seeing the weakness of a of a of a. Oprah's point on validation and where we go for validation and how the Christian view and there's a lot of comparison. This week, not so much. Just this opening quote by Oprah. It um, goes like this. This is from her finale address. What I know for sure from this experience with you is that we are all called. Everybody has a calling and your real, your real job in life is to figure out what that is and get about the business of doing it. Every time we have seen a person on this stage who is a success in their life, they spoke of the job, they spoke of the juice that they received from doing what they knew they were meant to be doing. We saw it in the volunteers who rocked abandoned babies in Atlanta. We saw it in those lovely pie ladies from Cape Cod making those delicious pot pies. We saw it every time Tina Turner, Celine, Bocelli, or Lady Gaga lit up the stage with their passion. Because that is what a calling is. It lights you up and lets you know that you are exactly where you're supposed to be. Doesn't that sound good? You're exactly where you're supposed to be, doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing. And that is what I I want for all of you and hope that you will take from this show, to live from the heart of yourself. You know, I was when I was reviewing for this and I thought of a, a couple lines from uh, Louis C.K.'s stand-up comedy routine and um, he has a little bit he does on technical high schools. He said, I was, I was doing some stand-up at a technical high school and he said, you know what, I realized about a technical school, um, I got to follow this otherwise I'll get it wrong, I'll get a joke wrong, right? Um, he says, this is where dreams go to die. Um, or no, 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 I already got it wrong. I I got it wrong because I looked up and I tried to tell the joke this is where dreams go to get narrowed down he said this is where dreams get narrowed down all their lives we tell our children they can be anything they want but at the technical school they say we've got it down to eight things you can be eight things I just thought that was there was sort of a realism there that he's pointing out, right? So, you know, you can be whatever you want, but then, and, and where do you stand with respect to this? You know, what are you going to tell your kids, or what have you told your kids about what they can be and what they might be called to be? Is it this wide open sky's the limit thing, or are you more of the realist? You know that there's just going to be factors in life, and it may be even less than eight things by the end of it all calling? What's your sweet spot? and How do you find it? These are big issues, I think, for us. And often, unfortunately, when you get into a setting of church, when we're talking about calling, too much, I think the experience will be of, of people, is that um, in the church, it gets narrowed down to, in terms of calling, it's narrowed down to this one slice of the pie of life that has to do with church work, volunteering, doing good deeds, volunteering with the church serving God, ministry. And so, you know, what ends up often happening is that you can, if you're in the church context for a while and you hear a a message is going to be about calling, you say, please tell me somewhere in here that my work matters. Right? Tell me that my job has some kind of bigger calling in it. And in fact, the Bible really does. So when you look at what the Bible has to say about calling, it really does do that. In fact, what it does is it paints this picture where there's a there's two two levels really of the calling. There's and all of us have these two layers. There's the macro calling. Let's just call it that. The macro calling in the Bible is something that's shared across the board for all those who are in the body of Christ, for all those who are pursuing the Christian faith. There's a macro calling. But then there's all of our micro callings. And the macro calling within the body of Christ transforms the micro calling it directs it, it shifts it, it makes it a whole different kind of thing than it is without that that macro calling that all Christians share. Um, this story actually tells us a lot about calling. You might look at this story in Ma- in Mark chapter ten and you say, I mean, I think this would be a common response: is to read it and go, "Oh, that's kind of interesting." Um, blind man gets his sight back; it's a miracle. Wow, and and you might think, oh, I wonder if that ever happens today, and then you just kind of go on with, with whatever else. But actually, this story tells us an awful lot about uh, our calling and all of our individual callings and how to think about them. It tells us how, um, our, how the call, let's call it the call of God, transforms all of our individual micro-calls. So let's look at this in terms of three important questions. First of all, what does the call the big call. What does the call actually change? Second of all, how is the call received? And third, where does the call take you? So let's start with number one. What does the call actually change? You you might not think I would start here with this story, um, but there's a great insight that you find if you just look at one word in this passage. And it's the word in verse 50, cloak, cloak. This is what verse 50 says, throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. And as, you know, I always get curious about stories and what their context is within the, the, the bigger book that they're written within, so in the Gospel of Mark, and you read on and you notice this, this really incredible thing that happens in chapter 11, verse 8, the very next story, Okay? Now Jesus is going to Jerusalem. And it says many people, so this is really the same crowd from the story we read today. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. In fact, if you read back even one verse before this, it says when they brought the colt to Jesus, they threw their cloaks over it. They're throwing their cloaks on the, on the colt Many people spread their cloaks on the road while Jesus is being ushered into Jerusalem, and if you know this story, this is this is where it all happens. This is the turning the corner on the big final events of Christ's life. This is Christ's most important work that's about to happen, and people are taking their cloaks and using them in new ways to usher in what Jesus is about to do. And what is a cloak? It's this outer garment, it, it, it protects you from the weather, it can be used in different ways. So on the one hand, it's a, it's a possession. It's something that at one point in the Bible Jesus suggests it can be sold and, and sword, a sword could be purchased in exchange for a cloak. So it's got some monetary value, it's a possession. Here's the other thing, the blind man is using it every day, day in and day out, as a, as a way to make money. It's um, it's something that he spreads out on the ground, and it it is the main tool in his livelihood. It spreads it out here, and he's blind. He spreads his cloak out on the ground, and that's where the money kind of comes in as he's begging and asking for money on the street. So, what are we doing here with this cloak thing? Well, if you if you look at this story, I mean, it may seem like a small thing, but the more you read the Bible and especially the narratives of the Gospels, the more you get curious about these kinds of things. This is a hint, a pretty substantial hint that the narrator is throwing us of what this call does to your life. In one one story, the cloak is being used, uh, spread out for one's livelihood and money-making, and it's thrown off to the side. In the next story, when Jesus' most important actions are about to happen, cloaks, that same thing that was just thrown aside, cloaks are now being spread out to usher in his most important work. And in a similar way, the call, the, the macro call of Jesus, the call, and notice that Jesus is calling this blind man in the story. Call, call him, and they call him, and he comes. The big call of Jesus gets into your possessions and your livelihood. That's what a cloak was. It has to do with possessions and livelihood, and it transforms how you handle them. It changes your perspective on them. It changes your handling of your livelihood and your possessions. What are you doing for your livelihood? What is your job? What do you spend your time doing? Maybe it's school. Maybe it's art. Maybe it's um, working in a cubicle. Maybe it's staying at home with kids. This is your livelihood. This is how you spend your time. And what about your possessions? Well, both of those things, when the call comes, they get changed and transformed, and suddenly they are used to usher in Christ's most important work. It's a a glorious transformation. It's a transformation from uh, very much about yourself, things that you can buy with your livelihood and possessions and what they can do for you to suddenly now it's all totally different direction what they can do to usher in Christ's work you see the same kind of thing happening actually in Luke chapter 3 with John the Baptist Uh, people are coming as John the Baptist is ushering in Christ and in his arrival and as he's preaching and a crowd is gathering, all kinds of different people, this is the interaction. What should we do then, the crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. So you know, possessions, what do you do with it? How, does it cha- how are things changed now that you receive the big call? Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. And then some soldiers asked, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't, don't accuse people falsely and be content with your pay. Do you notice that he's not saying, stop what you're doing, stop, what's, stop those jobs because something big is happening. He just changes the whole perspective on how you think about them, your possessions, your livelihood. I wonder how you think about that when you think about your possessions and your livelihood and do you wonder if there's a way in which uh, if you hear the call of Jesus or the call of God in your life or you're even starting to hear just echoes of it and you're wondering and if there's a way maybe it's just tugging on you a little bit that it's going to transform. Have you wondered about this that it might transform how you look at all the things that make up your life, your livelihood, your calling. Any any career, any uh, livelihood that you 're invested in I mean th- th- this is a pretty despicable one in the John the Baptist story. The tax collectors were hated, they were traitors. The right answer for John in this story is to say, Stop being a tax collector it 's terrible it 's despicable. Stop it i mean we 're coming into tax season. We can resonate a little bit right, preparing our taxes, but really culturally these were these were traitors these were not just a you know the person following the rules of the law this was but he says, no, keep doing it, just now, now do it differently. As if to say you're ushering in with whatever you do, you're ushering in Christ's most important work. Is that possible that what you do with every day of your life could be that? I mean, becoming a Christian involves at some point this this big whoa moment. You know, whoa, this is this is so much bigger than I even imagined. This is not just this little slice of life over here. This defines everything and puts it all in this new Kind of direction. We, in a sense, we should all be praying because none of us fully grasp this. We should all be praying all the time for God to open our eyes, that we could see how our jobs and our resources, that our eyes, like the blind man, our eyes might be opened finally to see things in a whole new way. Everything we do. So that's that's what the call changes. But how does the call? How is the call received? Because not everyone receives it. A fascinating thing. So I've already done kind of, let's skip ahead to the story after this because I can't get enough. I can't pack enough stories into this. Let's go back and, and go one story or a couple stories back. Um, because what there's another thing the narrator is doing here and this is clear as day. Every commentator says that this is what's happening. This blind man is a model disciple and he's being compared, he's being contrasted to a, disi- a potential disciple that came a little earlier in the story. It was a rich man who approached Jesus. And let me just give you a picture of the differences in the two interactions. Um, The rich man who approached Jesus came basically saying, what can I do? What can I do to help you? What more can I do? The blind man, who's blind, somehow is shouting out, have mercy on me! Have mercy on me. That's his message. How can I help? Have mercy on me. In, implicit in shouting out. I don't know how often you do shout out. Have mercy on me. I don't know. Probably not a lot, my guess. But when you're, if you're at that point, you're admitting that you, you need help, that you've that you've screwed things up, that you're not perfect. That's why it's mercy. It's not just have, give me some help. It's have mercy on me. I don't even deserve. Okay. That's keeps the of difference. What can I do to help? Have mercy. And then the rich man's coming to Jesus with admirable respectability. So much so that the disciples, the close ones of Jesus, after he he walks away, because he he doesn't answer the call, the disciples are totally beside themselves. This guy is not apparently somehow cut out or in the right kind of place to become... Well, then who can enter the that's that 's their response he comes with admirable respectability. You guys would love this guy you would you 'd want to be his friend this uh, the um the blind man comes with despicable poverty. you probably wouldn 't like him and then both of them this is how it goes when they 're called there 's two totally different responses when the rich man is finally gets the call, and Jesus verbalizes the call, which for the rich man. Jesus knew it needed to be go sell all that you have and give to the poor then come and follow me when he gets the call he walks away sadly when Jesus sends the call to the blind man he jumps up and runs excitedly it's a contrast in how you receive the call it's it's to dig into the story it's fascinating Jesus is leaving Jericho, we have some of these details, and it's fascinating, he's going to Jerusalem from Jericho, it's about a one-day journey, it'd be like if we had all just arrived here at this time of day, walking from downtown Folsom, with the added bonus of it would be uphill a thousand feet, the elevation difference would be a thousand feet, so it's it's an arduous one-day journey that these people were about to go on as they left Jericho and there was a big crowd that's what we're reading here they had just they were just leaving the city with this big and who knows you know Jesus always wanting to help another person he'd probably dragged it out helping this person helping that person the crowd was already frustrated probably and then this guy this despicable beggar over here he's shouting he's shouting for Jesus as if you know And I'm sure there was a feeling in the crowd of, don't let this this guy drag this whole thing down. We're going to leave later if anything happens here. Plus, Jesus just told us, some of them might know this, Jesus told us to be quiet, about the whole identity thing, the Messiah, to say, Jesus, Son of David, and shout it out. That's a messianic title. That's risky business politically. Jesus told them to be quiet about it. He's shouting it out over and over from the side of the street in public. So you can feel almost the level of annoyance as a really significant crowd is just getting going on this journey uphill to Jerusalem. And then, of course, Jesus halts and stops the whole show for this guy. Now, doesn't that say something right there? I mean, the person of admirable respectability, the rich man, he can't see. He can't see. That's the irony. He can't see Jesus for who he is. He can't see the call in such a way that he wants to answer it. The blind man, he can't see anything, but he's shouting who Jesus is somehow. Amidst all the disrespect he was going to get and all the um, ridicule and the mocking, he's just shouting it out and he's saying, Have mercy on me. And right there you have the model disciple, and what he's modeling is that to answer the call, you come asking for Christ mercy and healing, because that's also what he asked for. You come asking. for. You want to answer God's macro call? Come to Jesus. Excitedly run to Jesus. Asking for his mercy and his healing. Admit it. It's two totally different paths. The rich man comes, and just picture yourself, which, which looks more like you uh, lately. The rich man is coming, with all res- the respectability in the world and he's coming in a sense to interview Jesus <laughs> are you in some ways in your life we do, come on we do this are you interviewing Jesus, huh, well, Jesus what, do you, what might you have to add as if Jesus is, is an intriguing guest to your dinner party that might pro- provide if you invite him just this once some extra banter and unique conversation ah Jesus what do you have Jesus say something about that that, that mustard thing, mustard seed thing again come on And then there's the blind man. So there's the interview approach. And then there's the blind man who, it's not an interview. He's bearing his soul. He's not holding, wondering if I'm going to ever let you in. He's saying, this is who I am. This is who I am. I'm running to you. Please, just have mercy. What's your approach? One way to know if you've answered the macro call, and sometimes we're in that kind of place, where am I on this journey of, of being a Christian, not a Christian? One way to know if you've answered the macro call is are you still interviewing Jesus or have you started running broken for healing? Well, okay, so that's the kind of faith that heals because Jesus says it's his faith that heals him. And that's how the call is received. But where does the call take you? Just a couple final textual notes here. Um, Where does the call take you? In, in this story, um, I mean, this. I, I wanted, when I stumbled onto this this week and realized what kind of story this was that I had chosen, I wanted to make it into a five-week series just on this story because there's so much. So, you're getting the total con- condensed version today. The beginning of the story. It says where this blind man Bartimaeus. It says where he was. He was sitting by the roadside. He's on the side of the road, begging. On the end of the story, verse 52, it says, immediately he received his sight and he followed Jesus along the way, or along the road. It's the same word. First, he was beside the road. Second, he was, by the end of the story, he was on the road. Add a whole other layer that by the time that Mark was writing this gospel, within the growing Christian movement, it wasn't that long after Jesus had died and, and resurrected and ascended to heaven, at this time, that phrase, along the road, had become a way of talking about the Christian faith and being you know, the way, maybe you've heard in, in the book of Acts reading, the way, the way. He was So this is a man who starts totally on the sidelines and now he's on the center of the road. He's in the center of what it means to be a Christian, this despicable kind of guy on the side of the road. And now he's firmly on the way. It's a big statement being made about the journey that he makes here. And about where the call has taken him. And if there's any doubt about what kind of road this is and where this road leads, just look again at the stories right before this one, because the story right before this one ends a certain way, and the story right before that ends a certain way. Let me just tell you. The two stories before this this one end this way. First, Jesus tells his followers that the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests. Well, he says, We're going up to Jerusalem. And he says, I'm going to be delivered over to the chief priests, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die. He tells them where this road is going. And then three days later, uh, I'll rise. And then the next story, he ends by saying this, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is dropping big hints about what this road, where this road is going. It's going to these big, what we maybe to use a, a theology word, these big salvific events of the end of his life. The Christians look at and say, that's what makes a Christian knowing about his death and his resurrection and putting your faith in them. That's where this road is going. It's a road of Jesus' actions in our behalf, you know, being a ransom for us. And it's not, as to just go back and connect one time here to the quote from Oprah, it's not the road where you live from the heart of yourself. Jesus gives himself so that you can be a somebody. Uh, One final textual note, because I just can't give up on all these amazing things that are in this passage. Verse 46, we see this man is named. It's very unusual. Very unusual in the gospel stories and in the gospel of Mark that's one of these interactions where there's a healing that the person's name is given. His name is given. He starts out a nobody, but in this story, he's named right up front. It was a blind man, Bartimaeus, and then the the note, which means son of Timaeus. This is somebody who uh, probably was, it's probably a little bit of a reference check given in the story because he was so well known in the broader Christian community that people would read this and there'd be a common knowledge of, oh yeah, Bartimaeus, really? that was. That's what he came from? That's how he got to where he is in the growing Christian movement. Um, and then, of course, if you compare that, it's a stark contrast to the rich man. We're not given his name. We're not given his name. Because in his micro-calling, if you think of back to the issue of calling, in the rich man's micro-calling, he had made a name for himself in this world. Everyone would have said it, but in terms of the Bible, he's a nobody by the end of it. Where does the call take you? Well, it it puts you on the road of Christ's actions on your behalf. Not that you're going to it's a it's a great temptation that you're going to make a name for yourself by your own pursuit of being on this career path. This calling put you on the path where Christ's actions on your behalf totally transform not only your micro-calling, but your life. And that's eventually, Christ's actions are what give you your name. Let's pray that this might happen a little bit in our lives. God of grace, um, in many ways, so many of us have wrestled or are wrestling right now with where our life is headed, headed and what, we are, what we're supposed to do next. Which path to take on the fork in the road that's coming up? Um, which, which of the many things we want to do in this life should we actually pursue? And help us amidst all of that. Those are all great questions. Help us, please, um, through your supernatural work of your Holy Spirit to also find some answers to the question of what your bigger call is on our life and in this world. Carve out some space in our journey that we ask that kind of question and that we, fig- and, and that we might discover that what happens is when, when we begin to figure that question out that the other stuff falls into place nicely. And we see how we were built and made to be a unique service to your world to usher in your most important work in this world today. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.